Hello and welcome to the Groove Sofa podcast. I'm Alice. And I'm Lucy. And together we want to invite guests to come and share their grief with us. Our aim is to cover a whole range of grief from a whole range of people. We're sorry for your loss, but we are glad that you have found us. Thank you for listening to the Groove Sofa podcast. In today's episode, we speak to Megan about the death of both of her parents. Megan is a psychotherapist and a grief and trauma educator. She also has a podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle, so be sure to check it out. My name is Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am a trauma therapist who specializes in grief and loss in Washington, D.C., where I have a private practice. Um, And I I also have a platform called Grief is My Side Hustle, which has a podcast and a writing, a free writing workshop. Um, And all of that has been in addition to my work since I lost my dad to cancer. My dad died of cancer, small cell cancer um, in 2017. He died four days, a year and four days after his diagnosis. So he got a very serious cancer diagnosis. We knew it was very serious. We knew a year is sort of standard with that diagnosis. So his cancer and his death, while it was as abominable as cancer always is, it was sort of expected. We were able, he was able to plan for it. Um, I spent a lot of time, I live in DC. He lives in Cape Cod, which is, you know, a plane flight away, not too far. And I went, you know, many, many weekends in a row to just sort of sit and be with him so that I could be a part of his dying. And he understood he was dying. In 2019, um, my mom died suddenly when I was on vacation with her. So every year, my husband, my dog, my three kids and I go up to their house in Cape Cod and spend some time with her. And I had, I had actually previously been on a week vacation. My husband's English, his family are from Guilford. He took our three kids to Guilford because we could travel back then um, to see their grandparents. And I said, wow, I, my mom, you know, she's still really struggling with the loss of my dad. She and I could go do something. So about a week before I left, my older sister called and said, she hasn't been feeling great. She wasn't like in the best of health. She's a tiny little five foot little old lady. Um, but when I called her, she was very powerful and she was like, don't be silly. We're going, I'll see you at the airport. And we spent a week in Maine together and it was clear that she wasn't feeling well. She was definitely not herself. When I think back on it now, I realized how much she was hiding from me, but I spent a week with her. And while my husband and kids were in England, I was checking in with them, calling and my youngest son, who was six and a half, almost seven at the time was having nightmares. And the nightmares that he was reporting to my husband were that he was afraid someone he loved was going to die. So that was, you know, every night he was waking up in the middle of the night. And obviously I didn't think anything of that because you don't think of anything when kids are, you know, talking about things like that. And um, then we ended up, they came back. I came back here. I was actually only back for a day and we got in the car and drove to Cape Cod, which is a bit of a drive. And when we showed up, it had only been a day or two days, but my mom was clearly not well. And I ended up being able to take her to the emergency room and, you know, they checked her out and said she was okay. And then five days later, I was driving my kids. I was about an hour away in our minivan and I had this totally overwhelming sensation. I parked the car. They were running into a house to collect a kid. We were going to 
um, have with us that day. And I had this overwhelming sensation in my stomach that felt like my water breaking. And I absolutely, like, I knew, like, I, I just can't, I still can't explain it, but I knew she had died. And my husband was back at the house where she was. And I called him and said, have you seen my mom? And he said, no. And I said, I, I need you to go in her room. I think she died and she did die. So I was an hour and 15 minutes away and in a parking lot of a, you know, broken down like ice cream store. And my kids were in the car and the car was on and I had to call my five brothers and sisters um, to tell them. I didn't have to call them. I felt compelled to call them and then get in the car and drive home um, to where she was and in the process sort of figure out a way to put my kids with someone who would take care of them so that they wouldn't have to show up to this moment um, that I ended up driving home to. And yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a story. It really is. Gosh, like there's so much to unpick in, in that. There's so, oh, there's just, yeah, there's so much to process, you know, obviously having, you know, you talk obviously about this very often on your, on your social media and on your own podcast, but just listening to that story, it sounds like a nightmare, you know, that sounds crazy. And we talk about the kind of physical effects sometimes of, uh, of yeah. grief and that kind of moment where your chest feels like it's ripping open when something happens like that. Yeah. And uh, I've heard of people kind of knowing, like, you know, not mm-hmm. being there in the moment with that person, but like having that really, you know, that kind of gut feeling that something just isn't right. And the fact that you, you know, had that connection with your mom that you really like felt her leave this this world is is just kind of is is it's insane to like hear you tell that story. It is insane, and I've sort of had to work my way into it. I mean, I have a lot of like physical reactions inside my body that sort of give me signals to things. I mean, the interesting thing is my youngest son, who's also very sensitive. He, he went to bed that night and said he didn't, he knew he was going to sleep through the night that he thought that. That's the other thing is that like, he was so intuitive as well. Like he knew that something was going on. That's, and it's wild because you obviously didn't know that your, your grand, that your mum was, you know, that poorly. You didn't know that she was at that part of her life. She was poorly, but you know, like with anyone with parents who are over a certain age, they're going to be, you know, they're up and down and you just kind of go with it. And then for that to actually happen is, oh, it's just crazy. It, yeah. And, and I mean, what I say to people is we knew she wasn't well, but there's a big difference between not being well and going to die. And we had no idea she was going to die. I don't believe she had any idea that she was going to die. I mean, it, it ultimately was a really beautiful death. She was very religious and she died holding her, um, her, um, what are they called? Rosary beads. She was very Catholic. She had been able to, I say, sneak out of the house because I told her she couldn't leave the house because she was too sick and I didn't want her driving. And I was going out and I, um, she snuck out of the house to see a priest that she was very good friends with. And he blessed her, not like blessed her, like she was dying, just prayed over her. Um, you know, she was in her favorite pajamas in her bed and, I think it was my husband who found her. And I think that's exactly if she could have scripted how it would go down, it would be not in her house alone with people who cared about her, but not her own family, you know, 
who had to suffer those moments, which were really, I'm sure difficult moments, actually, my husband and I have never talked about it. Um, but the moment for me of being in the car, you know, being in this crazy parking lot that I'll never forget and sort of having to figure out like, how do I react to this? Do I, you know, I'm a mom and I've got these, I had my three kids and my best friend's kid in the car. Like, what do I do? And, you know, it's a moment that, that I think was probably at the root of what then happened, which was, I got really terrible PTSD. And I think just for people who don't really know what that means, it's like invasive thoughts that you can't stop from coming into your head. And my invasive thought was it's your fault. She died. I mean, it just, I heard it all day long and images. And I spent probably an hour and a half to two hours just with her praying over her, even though prayer is not my strong suit. Um, I knew it was important to her. So I wanted to give that to her. But the legacy of that was I have a lot, I had a lot of images of her dead body that just were relentless, particularly at night. And I just, you know, you go a month without sleeping, you go a month without eating, you're, you're getting sicker and sicker. So, you know, it's sort of, it locked into my system. And the surrealness of that is that's what I treat people for. Not always grief related, but, you know, I, I do trauma and there's lots of different kinds of trauma grief and loss is one of them. Um, so I knew exactly what was happening to me. I knew exactly what treatments needed to happen. Um, and for lots of different reasons, some of those treatments just didn't happen in a timely enough manner. Um, and, you know, sorry, I was just going to say, like, I think, um, speaking about, you know, that trauma, that PTSD, I think a lot of people don't talk about, um, that you know actually what it feels like to see somebody that you love who has died because like I personally there's nothing that I can forget about yeah that moment because that person embodied everything that you know and love and it's all the things that brought you into this world and then suddenly to see somebody dead it's so surreal um and it's really really hard to process that for for months I had like nightmares and right I thought that you know it was probably just my mind trying to process that um that PTSD exactly and that you know um and you'll know from from having your dad also die from cancer is that you know when you know it's like a it's a much longer process and you're probably part of that kind of nursing stage and you see them kind of slowly fading and then to see them gone and being able to process that they actually have gone you know seeing them like that it's really hard to explain just how final that feels yeah and and a lot of what I teach in on my platform is about actually what's going on with your brain in those moments so and I mean I won't go deep into the detail of it but we our bodies are wired to respond to threat and a dead body of someone that you love is like top tier threat and what your what your brain does at the base of the neck there's this tiny little like part of your brain which is called the amygdala that enlarges because it's like the smoke alarm and it's sending all these messages into your body like you know, run away from this, or, you know, it's the fight, flight, freeze response. And it's, it's so instinctive. It's so old in our brain that they call it the reptilian brain. And what it does when it enlarges is it cuts off 
the literal oxygen from firing up the rest of your brain. And so think about like from the base of your neck to the, to the back of your forehead is kind of shut off. Like it's not getting the circuitry that it needs. And so what that means, and so that's what we call a, you know, a trauma response is when your brain is overwhelmed and it can't give you those good responses. So, so what happens is you code memory weird, you know, so people most, I, I heard you do a podcast with Mark Lemon and you guys were talking to him about, you know, how intact his memory is. And, mm. and that's often true with trauma. Yeah. What's often true is that you have no memories right away because your brain has been just like hit by a gong. And then when you do recover your memories, because just as you said, Lucy, like your brain has to process it through. And so for some, it, you know, it just does take a little bit of time. You have images that invade and cause nightmares and then they kind of just go away. But when it's, when it's PTSD, they don't, they don't metabolize themselves and they just stay there. And one of the reasons I talk so much about the PTSD and the brain in general is that I'm on grief and loss boards and I get a lot of emails from people that are like, why can't I remember, you know, what my dad's voice sounded like, or how come I can only remember this? And, and the answer is, and you know, it's just not part of generalized grief education because your memory is really fucked up right now. It doesn't. Stay it's that funny way, because it's true. But it like it, it screws your memory and I feel up like so much. that kind of stuff is so important for people to hear. And also, with PTSD, to say, listen, those memories and all that stuff flashing in your mind and keeping you up late at night and giving you nightmares—that should go on for a while. That's normal, but not forever. And if it's going on and you're suffering, there are these really concrete treatments that people do that will help you. And so that's like my soapbox about PTSD, because when I'm on grief and loss boards, you know, people with real suffering are reaching out and they have never heard of EMDR, which is one treatment, sensory motor psychotherapy, IFS, you know, there are things that are, it's not just come in and tell me how you're feeling. It's come in and we're going to move that energy. So it doesn't torment you. I think like sitting and listening to you um, speak about that from a professional sense of view really made sense. Um, it was really interesting to hear about actually the physical reaction that's happening in your brain. And it's um, yeah, it's really common that people uh, talk about memory in, in our podcast when they come on, either the fact that they don't remember anything, as you say, or they remember a lot of stuff in, in really great detail. Um, yeah. And yeah, I guess it can, I guess it can go one way or, an, or another and you just don't really know. And it also shows how um, overpowering grief is and like we don't actually have a control about it. And so that it almost, almost makes me feel better about it hearing you say that um because you know it's it's not necessarily up to us to control how we feel you know this is this is a thing going on in our body and in our brain that we are powerless to to some extent it's totally you're totally right we are and and that is you know the fight flight freeze responses are so strong they're so strong and we don't get to pick which one, you know, we have. And I mean, they generally kind of, they, they go down levels. So one that we don't really talk about because it's not, a, it's not as instinctive as just sort of using social support. So can you turn to someone and say, can you help me in this moment? 
And for most people, when you're confronting death, there's nothing anyone can do to help. So that one we already go past. And then fight and flight are this, you know, sort of in the same category. And, you know, you can run away, you can try to fight it, but again, it's not going to work. And then freeze is where a lot of people find themselves. And that's the one where when you look at sort of all the treatments, what they're saying is freeze is when you are in freeze, it's because you really are in total overwhelm. And what I hear from people is they do all these things like they, you know, they go to work or they hang up the phone or they have a fight with their, they don't respond in the way that they would have wanted to. Their first thought, I remember when my grandfather died, my first thought was like, oh, who's going to drive me to my high school orientation? Mm. And people have a lot of like shame about that, you know, like they feel terrible. And when I, when I take out my map and say, let me show you what's going on in your brain that you have no control over. And of course your brain drives a lot of what your body is doing. Your brain is sending those signals to the body. So a lot of what your body is also doing, not sleeping, doesn't want to have sex, you know, is um, lots of people have stomach problems or diarrhea or something or headaches, or they don't want to eat. Again, that's not anything that's happening to you willfully. It's just, that's how impactful this event is in your, and I certainly had all of that. I mean, I, ha- I still actually two years later, don't really sleep. I still don't sleep. Yeah, I think um, sleep's probably a really common one. I think, um, you know, speaking about that in a, a long-term sense, but, you know, there's there's the literal sense of um, short-term, you know, of what we were initially talking about, seeing a dead body. And yeah. we have had a few people on the podcast who have said that they literally ran out the house. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they're quite quite literally flying, um, yeah. running away. Um and then they sort of come back, but it's just like in that moment, you're like, ah, shit, I don't know what to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we, we, we have feelings and opinions about how we responded, you know, oh my God, what kind of a person will run out of the house? Well, like no kind of a person who's thinking would run out of the house, only a person whose brain had been hijacked by all of these instincts would do that sort of thing. And for most people, you know, a lot of people talk about not remembering the funeral or not being able to put pieces together and, you know, not being able to sort of say this happened and then that happened and then this happened, um, or to sit down and read. I'm sure you guys have heard that, that people, you know, just like can't sit and read. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, I show people like, this is because of your hippocampus and your hypothalamus. And, and honestly, it's part of the reason I talk about it is it's been one of the most comforting things for me. You know, when I'm on my podcast, I'm always asking people questions I want to know the answer to. Like like I one question I always ask people and I don't I don't know if you guys have have this experience, but I find that people after they have lost, you know, loved ones either have after some time either have conversations and talk to them in their head or think about them in the present tense or they don't. And I'm always fascinated by that because I would love to think about my mom in the present tense. And I don't know, and with my dad, it's been four years with my dad, but my attachment to my dad was less and I loved him a lot, but I didn't call him every day. You know, I called my mom every day. I talked to her every day and I would love to feel like I could still talk to her. Um, And it's not, I'm not, you know, I'm not 
thinking to myself, oh, I would be a crazy person talking to me. I just have not been able to um, conjure up that sensation. And so I'm always interested in sort of over time, how people negotiate the fact that their loved one died and what it means, you know, in their present day, like, do they think about them? You know, do they talk to them now or do they not? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually. And I think for me, so my dad died June last year. So like, what are we now? Like kind of 16, 17 yeah. months ago. Um, I, I would say that I still think that he is somewhere else. Like yeah. there are days where I'm like, I, even though I saw him die, you know, I nursed him to the end of his life. Yeah there today I had a memory come up on my phone and it was like I'm so lucky to have this like this is my amazing dad or something with a picture of us and I looked at it and I just was like oh it's my dad like as if he is still here and it's you know like it was so it was such a present tense post like and it was so strange to see that today and for me to go like oh oh wait no he did die like he died last year and there's quite often moments like that where I'm suddenly kind of like startled back into the realization that he died because I've gotten so good at putting it into a box and talking about it on a podcast that I just rolls off my tongue now like oh yeah my dad died last year like that's just that's almost got no emotion to it. But then when I actually sit and I look through photos or I listen to recordings of his voice. Kills you. It's like, fuck, he did actually die. Like he's not here anymore. And that's, you know, I think the last few months, especially whilst we've kind of had this break, that's been the thing that like, I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, this second year in and I'm really starting to realize this isn't, it's not like a one year thing. You know, this is like my life now and he's always going to be dead. And there's so much in my life that he's not going to be there for. So it's weird about the present tense thing. Cause I'm, you know, I still probably do think that he is, I still talk about him quite a lot in the present tense. I think it's, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's one of those things like after my mom died every single night, I would get in bed with my husband and say, I cannot believe she died. And I didn't mean, I don't believe she died. Just like, I can't believe this is what we're doing. Almost like you can't wrap your head around it. You can't yeah. accept it as the truth. It's like yeah. too, too big of an information and like too big of a con- like death as a concept is too big for our tiny little brains to understand. No, that, Alice, that's totally it. And it yeah. feels to me like... Like, it's like a moment in the matrix where everything falls together because like when we hit my mom's two years, two year anniversary, I was like, which the anniversaries are not, those aren't the days that kill me. It's like small little things I don't see coming that kill me. And Mm. when we hit her anniversary, I was like, what do you mean? I have lived on this earth for two years without this woman. Like, how did I even do 18 hours without her. Like I still find that totally crazy to me. And like, hopefully, you know, I'm 47, like hopefully I'll live a very long life, but that means I'll live it. I'll live all that without my mom and my dad. And we, I don't, I don't know what your experiences were, but 
so my, my dad died first, then my mom died. And, and I have these five brothers and sisters and they lived in this house and my mom died. And then six months later was COVID. So the house sat like this crazy mausoleum to her life. Like we had sort of imagined that we would come back up and start going through the things, you know, in a couple of months or so. And then I got sick. So that postponed it. And then suddenly no one could go anywhere or be anywhere. And so by the time we did get back to her house, which was still during COVID, but it was like her handbag was still in the doorway with her license inside it. I mean, it was just so incredibly odd. And then the, the experience, you know, and I don't know if either of you did this of like going through every single thing that she owned. Hmm. It, it felt like, like in the Bible, when they like dress the body, you know, and they, and they attend to the, that's what it felt like on this much larger level of, you know, I was finding stationary to a home that we haven't lived in for 30 years stuffed in the back of a drawer, you know, or, or she was a big um, sewer. So she had made these Christmas stockings and she had started some. And I was like, what do I do with these? Like, oh, this I had the same thing as my mom. <laughs> did. Yeah. And like unstarted, unfinished craft projects. Oh, right. And what do you do with that? Like it's hours and hours of her life. There's yeah. no more hours of her life, but I don't cross stitch. Like what? Do, mm. So there were some things that were so hot to me that I just had, you know, my brother was, my brother would have thrown it all out, you know? So there were some things where I was like this pile of, I can't be responsible for Like I, I, there, these are, my mom was a big crafter and sewer and, you know, it's just only so many sets of curtains that a person can keep in their house. And it, you know, a lot of that just felt like, how is this possible? It felt, I was in plays when I was in high school and it felt like, you know, when you strike the set of a play and then it's just like completely gone. And then there's like going to be a dance troupe the next day. It just, we didn't take the house apart, obviously, but we did sell it to someone else. And it, even that to me, I, in my head, I think that's where they are. They're at their house, Mm, but they're not at their house. It's really interesting because so I have my mum is still alive and um lives in the home that my dad died in um and she has decorated a lot of the house since he died it was like her thing she was like I want to do the garden I want to do the back room I want to do the front room like I'm gonna make it into the home that for years and years and years you know my parents worked really hard to try and have the house the way they wanted it to be but they're both chefs and it just got out of you know just like pushed back so like she when he died she was like right I'm gonna do this because this is what dad wanted us to do but he was just too sick for so long that we just couldn't have all these people in the house decorating and doing stuff so she's like I'm gonna do it now but the only room that she hasn't done or she hasn't changed or touched or moved is the bedroom yeah so you walk through this house and it's like a completely different house in some way. It's like you yeah. are transported to this new place and it's all these things that my dad never saw and he never got to pick the paint or see the new floor or do anything like that. You walk up the stairs and you walk into the room and it's just catapults you back into the moment that you see him on the bed. Yeah. And that is like... Brutal. Yeah, it really is. Like, all you, you can can't do is live through it. Like it's dull, but 
yeah it's wild and it's so strange because so my dad was cremated and uh when he was first cremated we were like oh maybe we'll make some jewelry maybe we'll uh take the take the ashes to the beach you know maybe we'll do all these things but he died in the middle of covid so like nothing happens and so my mum bought the ashes home and she put them on the bedside table where he used to sleep and that is where he you know that's where those ashes have stayed and she's got his little um kind of neck scarf thing he used to wear to keep him warm sprays that with his deodorant you know kisses the box every night before bed and that's now her tradition at first I was like oh it's really nice to have that in the house this year on his birthday with it was his 60th birthday in August and um I went I was at my mum's house and you know walked upstairs and I went into the room and I sat on the bed and I like just looked around at this room that just hadn't changed you know like it was like he was still there but then I looked at this box and I was like oh my poor dad like that's all that's left of him even though I'm surrounded by everything that he owns like all of these things are still his his dressing gown is still on the wall like nothing has changed nothing has moved but he is being reduced to this box that's on a bedside table I just couldn't wrap my head around it like it really it really struck me I just had that moment of like oh god how can everything change so much but then stay exactly the same that doesn't make sense no it does make sense it's what and what it's making me think of and I haven't really had this conversation with other people so I'm really grateful to have it with with you both but but there are these like really unbelievably mind exploding moments that are just like normal little moments like you go and sit on the bed and they are so big you know they like when I was putting my parents things away and choosing where to donate and what to sell and what to throw away it so many times I would sit there kind of by myself and be like this was their life like these things that I'm holding represent their life like they meant something to them and and what do I do with them? And also like, where are these things going to go and who will they belong to? And what does that matter? And to me, my mind sort of felt like it was floating out into outer space because it was such a big, you know, existential, like French poetry kind of problem in my brain. And it would make me really kind of like panicky, you know, because not even like an anxiety, but more like a, what does it all even mean? And you know, my dad was 80 and still even, it's less so now. But when people say like, oh, I'm going to my dad's 86th birthday. Like, I don't, these are people I care about. And my response will be like, fuck you. How come your dad got to live six more years than my dad? You know, I, I mark the time and the way of being with them in these ways that I don't really have any control over one of them being that it can make my mind really floaty and I can feel really scared and kind of untethered. And the other, you know, it's just one of the other ways is that I feel kind of, I don't know, like Scrooge-ish and angry and frustrated that, you know, other people got their family for much longer. I mean, I feel sheepish saying that to you because your dad was really so young, but I think those are the ways that we end up you know, feeling like a little bit alone in loss. And, and I think about that a lot. I think a, a lot about, and I, I talk about it and write about it, that we really are alone, that you can be going through it with your mom 
not going through the same thing that you are really going through because they lost a different relationship than you lost. So the aloneness can feel really scary to me sometimes, like, like overwhelming and, and sort of stealing some of the joy of life. And so talking to other people about their loss just makes me feel like, okay, all right, it's normal. It's okay. Like people, and and I think about the podcasting and being on podcasts and the grief is my side hustle work as sort of both processing my loss and also offering to other people like, no, I get it. We all get it. We don't all get it, but we, those of us who get it, get it. Few things that you said there that um, really stuck out to me. I think just like the general feeling of being overwhelmed, um, and because it's just like it's a problem that's too big for us to deal with. So I think probably feeling quite overwhelmed and like panicky is probably quite common. Um, and also sort of like feeling you saying how it feels like a existential crisis and yeah. um, it's so true like you so, do sort of end up sitting there and feeling like you know what's the point or like sort of asking like quite like weird like philosophical questions to yourself um if you wouldn't mind I would like to ask you something um yeah. on something that you said earlier that I just picked up on that was quite interesting um, so you mentioned about how like anniversaries and stuff aren't normally the things that floor you as such. Yeah. And you mentioned that it's like maybe smaller things yeah. that will sort of like knock you unsteady. So I'm really interested to know um, when your grief has been unexpectedly triggered or like what are the things that trigger your grief? Yeah, that's such when? a great, it's, that is a great question. So um in my studies somewhere, there's a, there's a theorist whose last name is, is Rando and um, Teresa Rando. And she invented this word called a stug, which is a sudden temporary upsurge of grief. And I just love that. I love it. Cause love it's not, really, it's not a trauma trigger, you know, a trauma trigger is based on, you know, something else, but it's, but it's like something is making you really, you know, yearn for and mourn for your person in the moment. And you know, my mom was like a lot of things. She was really, really funny. So when things are really, really funny, what I used to do when she was alive is I would collect that story in my head and then I would save it and I would call her and be, you know, really like enjoy the story double time, three times, because she would add her own kind of funny to the story. So when something really, and, and this, and the funny would have to be something wildly absurd, like a crazy coincidence or something super stupid that someone did. So when those stories in life happen, I enjoy them. And I have this little wistful part of me that misses the hell out of her in that moment. And I have three kids and those things happen all the time, but I can give you a very concrete example. So I, um, I I wrote a memoir during this time about losing my parents and the people, um, her publishing company just bought the book and I was looking around at some of her stuff and discovered on her website and discovered that a woman from my town that I went to high school with had written this incredible book. So the woman's name is Jessica Dulong and she and I were in a production of Cinderella together. Okay. That like we've known each other since we were babies and we lost track of each other, which is this unbelievable story of how the boats on 9-11 went towards the debris in Manhattan to pick people up, you know, cause Manhattan's an Island and that she was one of the people on one of the boats. 
And I cannot tell, I mean, I have the book right in front of me. I cannot tell you how angry and how I can like fall to tears that my mother will never know that story and never get to read the book because those kinds of books, those, I would collect those books. I would go to bookstores, like real life, dramatic stories, memoir, biography. Those were the things she loved the most. And so all year long, I'd be like, mom, have you seen this book? Have you? But here's one that would have blown her mind. And it's written by someone she knows and used to carpool with. And that person was there. And it's a first turn. I mean, it's things like that, that really feel moments that, you know, that she would just love to share with you. I think that's, I think it's just super bummed out that she didn't get it. You know, there are ones where my kid does something really amazing and I'm like, oh, I would have been able to brag about my kid <laughs> in a way that I can't talk. Yeah, to like else. you can't to anyone else because she but would I have been the number one I, fan as well. <laughs> yes. And I think the way that I really, I mean, she would have said like, shut up, Megan, you're bragging. I mean, she really was very, <laughs> but, I, but I think the way that I miss her the most and my dad too, because they're like, you know, my dad would have gotten really into Wimbledon this year. He there were things that like, he just really enjoyed and the way that I miss them the most and come out of nowhere, it'll be, for example, they loved the show Luther and mm. there was a new season. And I was like, oh, that's oh such God. a good series. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and actually it was kind of, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, it yeah, was like twisted or, and dark. Yeah, I, so my, and, and it was like this epic story in my family because my mom called me one time and she was like, Are, have you ever seen this show? I can't figure it out. Uh, yeah. And it turned out she couldn't figure it out because they started in the second season. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like, what about the crazy lady and the dog? And she, they had, mm. so it's, it was this big story in my family about what idiots my parents were that they had watched this whole second season without watching the first season. And then That's there so was funny. a third season and, you know, and they didn't get to they watch it. To see it. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the ways I think that come out of, you know, I saw that, I think I was over in the UK and like flipped over, open like the radio times and it was like, you know, Luther's going to be a new season. And it just was like, you know, it just took, it felt like being mugged or punched. And it was just like, ah, oh, God damn it. There it is. Like the longing yeah. for them is right did there. You, did I, I'm sorry, if I misheard you, did you say that your dad was into a certain sport? No, he loved. So he loved watching tennis. My dad liked. Oh, tennis. he loved watching loved. tennis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same, same with my dad. Like a night. Did. When when you sort of said about it, I thought, God, yeah. You know, my dad used to love watching um, Wimbledon. Yeah. He used to love watching all of the Olympics yeah. and any sort of like big athletic event, like London Marathon and stuff like that. And um, the year that he died, the world um, record holder, female marathon time. So that had been someone and it had been this woman for like a really long time, like let's say 10 years. She got knocked off top spot. And then also the um, male um, world champion did it in sub two hours. And literally like not long before my dad died, he said like, oh, you know, there's going to be someone who's going to do a marathon in under two hours. And it was just like, oh, I wish I could tell you that, like, you know, Paula Radcliffe is no longer the world champion for women and that there's a sub-marathon, a sub-two-hour marathon. And it was just like, oh, I really wanted to tell him that. And it was, yeah, it was really, really hard and and really weird. And I imagine lots of people can relate to that 
I mean, maybe yeah. not Paula Radcliffe and Lisa, but right, right, in their right, own right. way. But they have their <laughs> own, they have their own yeah. thing where it's like, it's not really, I needed them or, you know, cause I, I'm a grown up now and I don't need my parents in that same way. I mean, I needed them, but not the same way. It's just more, I know them as people and these are the things that they enjoyed and these are the things that they loved. And I loved them for their personalities. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have a like organizing structure where I think my parents are contained souls that went to heaven. And I always feel really jealous of people who do like, I, I believe their energy, like I believe in quantum physics. So like, I believe their energy is out there in the world. I actually do believe that, you know, maybe there are ways that they could communicate with me. Although I don't think that has happened. Um, but I do, it's not like, I'm like, okay, mom, I'm, you know, I'm just talking to you and thinking, cause I know you're up there in heaven. You know, I hope you're watching Wimbledon. Like I, I can't yeah. make that work in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and like you said at the beginning of the podcast, um, different people can do things in different ways. So, you know, talk, and you were talking about, um, talking about your person in present tense or like not yeah. being able to do that. And I think it is just like really different for really different for everybody. Um, And like everybody sort of has a different experience and everyone has a different opinion. And that's what makes grief like really unique. Um, You know, it's unique to everyone, but it is something that unifies all of us who have experienced it as well. Yeah, it's, it's true. And, and I do, I think it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And, and this is such a bad analogy, but I think of it as kind of like puberty, like this thing that we all go through, but it's not a universal in terms of like, yeah. like for us to go through or what it's going to be like when we come out, you know, like if you sit down and talk to somebody about their experience of going through puberty, you're going to hear stories about people who were super excited to be growing and people who hated it, people who felt like, you know, their skin got better and people who didn't, people who felt like they were ignored during puberty and people who got attention that they didn't want. I think grief is a lot like that in the sense that, you know, there are some universals, meaning like, okay, you're going through this hormonal experience. These are the hormones. This is what they do. Um, you know, I think there are some things and I try to teach a lot about them and I do it in my writer's workshop, which is like, look, it doesn't it really doesn't kind of matter. These are the, these are the pieces that are generally clustered around grief, but there isn't a universal in terms of how you're going to feel about those things. So, you know, this could be hard for you and not hard for your brother. And this could be something that helps you and doesn't help your cousin. And I think in, at least in the, I read, when I came out of treatment, I read a lot of books about grief and loss. Uh, Most of them I threw across the room and there were several that I was like, okay, these are pretty good. And when people say to me, what books do you recommend? What I say is, first of all, I don't necessarily recommend a book because most people can't like, you know, think straight, Never mind, read. But secondly, I think the reason that there are so many books and there will be so many books is that people come at it and need different levels of support and different kinds of support. So the book I threw across the room and said was garbage is going to be a great book for somebody else. You know, I wanted to talk so much about my dad dying. I 
would reach out on his birthday to my mom and, and she, you know, her voice would crack. And then she would say, I need to go. I can't, I can't talk about it. I need to go. Mm. And my way of doing grief and loss. I mean, I say this a lot, like that woman would be so mortified to know that I (laughs) spend all this time talking about her death. And then I wrote a book about it. You know, people say to me, your mother would be so proud. I'm like, Oh, you don't know my mother. She would be freaking out. (laughs) Yeah, she would. She was really, really private. And And, you know, she was older, she was 75 when she died and Mm. her, um, you know, the, the ethos around what do you do with her? Such a different generation, isn't it? Really different, really, really different. And, you know, when I talked to, on my podcast, I talked to the palliative care specialist, Catherine Mannix, who is this incredibly generous, amazing woman who just wrote a book that's out in the UK called Listen about talking about grief. But she reminded me that, you know, women in my mother's generation, well, not women, everyone in my mother's generation were just barely on the cusp of people who would have had relatives dying in wars in large numbers or, or had relatives in their homes giving birth or, you know, the, the, we've had this big like revolution in terms of technology and sort of, I mean, maybe not now because of COVID, but in terms of just general physical safety and people used to do a lot more death in the home. And so people used to be around it more and had to talk about it more and had to negotiate it with their children and their mailman and their boss and all of that stuff. And so I, you know, I think my mom came from that kind of, you know, and, and probably also gravitated towards people who were, you know, we don't talk about hard things. And unfortunately for her, she grew a daughter who I, all I do is talk about hard things all day long. <laughs> I remember um, my brother saying, I can't remember which parent, after which parent it was, but after one of my parents dying, he was like, uh, you know, like the Victorians used to like wear black for a year to show that they were in mourning. And like that might, and obviously it lasts longer than a year, like we all know yeah. that, but like in some ways that might actually be um, helpful to show the outside world that you're grieving. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually went on a tirade about that exact thing. Like, you know, we wear, we wear bracelets for every iteration of cancer, like rubber bracelets so that people know and can say to you like, oh, I, I see that you have that bracelet on. And I did this deep dive into the Victorian morning clothing. Cause I was like, why? don't we wear black? I would have happily yeah. worn black. People maybe would have like made some room for me. And you know what the actual answer is? The answer is that there was a shortage of material and resources during a war. And so that's why it went away. It was like populations were no longer, they were at war. Um, they were making material in the same way. And, you know, and, and, and it was in the UK, it was, you know, handed down by higher societies who had more money and were emulating the queen. And, (laughs) but, but it wasn't like people said, oh, well, this isn't really doing anything to help us. It was, we can't really afford the resources to doing this, all this black clothing. And Mm. so it, it fell out of favor, but I, I really did. And I had a lot of little weird uh, one-off projects when I was grieving. And one of them was like, what if we made bracelets and people could choose to wear them and it would indicate who you had lost. And I still think it's a pretty good idea. I didn't. um, I like that idea. I think it's, um, I think it's really difficult because I think during this year in particular, 
there's been so much grief in the world that regardless or, or not whether you've like lost somebody during this time you have felt that <laughs> heaviness of the world being in mourning um unless you live under a rock um it's been it's been kind of completely um unavoidable so I think it'd be really interesting to have people actually I mean this I think this year the grief community on Instagram has just like bloomed into something which is amazing now but I think it's really interesting to talk about you know how people different people deal with losses and I was wondering if you'd mind me asking um about kind of how your relationships have changed I know earlier on you mentioned about you know maybe not wanting to be intimate or whether your you know breakdown of communication with siblings or whether it's with your kids you know as somebody who's lost both of their parents who has five siblings a husband and kids like yeah a lot of relationships to navigate when you're dealing with such intense grief and also that you know that side of your trauma where you've had that PTSD and stuff that you've been working through so just wondering if you'd mind talking a little bit about you know how it's impacted on your relationships and kind of tips for people it's something that we get so often yeah um and something that I personally you know my partner is incredibly fortunate in that she's experienced very little loss in her life and so when my dad died it was the first person that she'd ever lost you know all of her grandparents are alive her great grandma is alive she's 107 you know like she's experienced like nothing until my dad died so our relationship was very different after he died because I just felt so so kind of isolated and things like that but I think um yeah, just if you if you're happy to talk about kind of how it's yeah it's a great it's a great question and I mean, I think I would probably tell you that some of it is still going on, like it, that, it, that it can, that the energy around relationships still is um, shifting. So, so I'll walk backwards and say that my husband also, I think he would identify, say to you, he hasn't had a ton of loss. He's lost grandparents. He did lose um, a dear friend from Cambridge to cancer and um, which was really, you know, shocking and incredibly hard. And so I think he would tell you um, that that he was not sure exactly how to show up for me. I mean, he is the best of all possible human beings, um, but but it was it was hard. I mean, he was he was in a new work position. He had started a small NGO, and um, it required a lot of him. And this is when my dad died and, um, he was traveling a lot. And so I was going up to see my dad and he was like in France. I mean, actually he was in France when my dad died. And at the time that it was happening, I think I would have told you that I, that it was okay, that he was at a distance from me, but I took a lot of anger out on him. I, the way that I felt isolated, the way I felt out of control, the way I felt panicky, um, I, blamed him for a lot of that stuff. And so it really was like a new dynamic in our marriage and, and, and legitimately some of his behavior was even confusing to him. You know, he was sort of like, I don't know why I'm behaving this way, which was more aloof than maybe he normally is. And, um, and God love him. I mean, I came home one night and I got in bed and I was like, what is that book you're reading? And he was reading like Julia Samuels, who's 
also from the UK and um so her, we're, we're big fan girls we know oh know. right <laughs> I'm actually gonna I get to do an Instagram live with her next week um, oh, amazing she's just you know everything that she does but 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 the book that he was reading was all of these just vignettes of what it was like for her to treat people who were grieving and I, my heart like broke open. Like he was trying to understand me so deeply. And I have to tell you, and that's a chapter in my memoir. Like I'm pretty brutal about like, you know, we have this marriage and this is how I understood it to be. And I felt really abandoned and lost and he wasn't there. And then it was this crazy opposite experience, which was, you know, he was the one to find my mom. And even when I ask him questions about it, he is not, he does not want to burden me with what I know has to have been horrific for him. I mean, you know, the paramedics asked him to try to revive her. Like I know that because the policeman that was there told me. So I, and, and then when my mom got sick, I mean, when my mom died and I got sick, our marriage did this crazy thing where it was like, I was normally the one who would do the, you know, the drop the kids off to the birthday parties, the soccer, and I needed to be away for almost a month in treatment. So he just took, it was like, I dropped the car keys and the dry cleaning in his arms and was like, I'm going, I got to go. And I mean, our, our, and our marriage has, so it became sort of more equal, not in terms of like who was responsible for some of the mechanics that make our lives work. And in COVID, because neither of us have gone gone back to our office, oddly, it has sort of stayed more equal. Like he, he is responsible for more of those things. I never like went back for them. And that's not a terrible thing because I do think there was this inner kind of like feminist in me. Like, why am I doing all this domestic shit? I have a job too. And nobody likes these jobs. And, you know, if you'd asked me, the answer was practical. Like, well, he works longer hours and he makes more money and those things, but I couldn't. um, And and this is sort of a pivot. Like I actually, part of the trauma for me was choosing in that moment in the parking lot to show up as a mom for those kids in the car who were not in crisis, they were fine rather than take care of myself who was in crisis. And I think if I were to look at the trajectory of my PTSD, it was, and I've had many people on my podcast who talk about how, you know, they lost someone, but, but because their, their children needed dinner, like that gave them something to do and that helped them. I really had a hard time with that. I really had a hard time showing up for my kids and not feeling resentful that I was giving energy to them when actually I felt like I needed all the energy in the world. So when I went to treatment, part of my treatment protocol, and you know, I'm sure some of your listeners will have opinions about this. Like I don't sound like a great mom, but part of my treatment protocol was to not call home every night. And when I was calling home to, to just listen to what they wanted to tell me and not really ask questions because I needed to be 100% in my own grief. And I mean, I know I'm this such a long-winded answer, but I think that has continued to be the case as I have shown up in friendships, as I have continued to move forward, that like, I still need more of my own attention and my grief needs my own attention. And that used to be extra. And I used to give that to people. I used to show up for other people 
without a lot of difficulty because it was like, you know, like giving money to charity. If you have extra, it's not hard to give it away, but if you need it to pay rent, it's really hard to give it away. And so I've had some friendships that are wobbly and that I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can figure out which ones, you know, to sort of step in and shift the energy with. And, and I just know, I know because it's already happened that there are people that I, that, you know, our, we've sort of come to the end of the road in terms of how our relationships are going to be with each other. And, and I actually, that's okay. Because like when I had kids, there were also people who were single who I stopped seeing. And, you know, I don't, I'm not like mad at anybody, but I do think, I know you guys know, know what I'm about to say, but like people who, who have grieved the way we've grieved, we just understand each other. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to be in some rooms where people are talking about vapid shit. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I don't have the, I don't have what is required to be a part of this conversation. And if this yeah. is, is going to go down, I got to go somewhere else. It's so, oh, it's so refreshing to hear you talk. Um, it's honestly, you know, you said so many brilliant things during this recording and I think there's so much that's going to resonate with so many listeners. And I think me and Alice have spoken at length about this idea of capacity and how much capacity we have as people living with grief in our lives and how consuming it can be. And some days, you know, we have got more capacity for, you know, playing games with the kids or like, you know, hanging out with certain friends who are going to moan about their boyfriend for the whole time. And then some days we have no capacity left. You know, we don't have the space. We don't have the energy. And it's about so much of grief especially in the first couple of years is about learning how to identify that capacity and let in the amount that you need mm-hmm. um I think a lot of the people that I've met in the grief community are very um they are um empaths you know they are the people yeah. who have always supported their friends and their family through the difficult things and they have never had to say no to that giving that support. Um, right. And then it's really hard on, it's hard on everyone. Like I've, I've a lot yeah. of empathy for my friends where I'm like, I know I seem like kind of an asshole. I never come to the things that you want me to come to. And I'm, you know, and I, I don't show up the way that I used to. And I alternately want to apologize for that. And also say like, too bad. So sad. It's not going back the way that it was. And when you were talking about that thing about capacity, I was, I was really trying to like, I was very upset one day and I was trying to explain to my children what was wrong with me. And I was like, you guys, it's like, I'm soaking wet. I'm soaking wet with grief today. And we use that as the analogy, like, mommy, how are you doing today? Or like, what's going on? And I'll be like, you know what? I just got my shoes wet with grief. Like, so my feet are cold. Or, you know what? I just feel like I'm sitting in a puddle of grief, you guys. So like half of me is like kind of not okay. Mm. And then the days where I am fully immersed, soaked to my underwear, like need to strip, you know, the whole day, like if you get soaked, you can't just go into work. You got to turn around, go home, change your clothes. And I use that analogy with my kids because it's like, they get it and they understand it, but I have found myself using it as a shorthand with people I'm close with. Well, they'll say, you know, how are your feelings? How are you doing? And my husband uses that a lot. He invented that phrase of like, how are your feelings? Because I don't always want to talk about it, but I do want someone to ask me how I'm doing. And so he'll ask me that. And I'll be like, you know, my shoes are just a little wet today. Like, or, you know, I was soaking wet earlier, but I dried off and 
I'm doing better. So I love that idea of capacity. I really like that um, analogy. And I think it's really important as well to be able to um, communicate that to uh, people who don't understand it because I think like if you've not experienced it it is really hard to understand and when you're sort of describing it in that sense like the word that um, sprung to my mind was saturated just like over you know it's that grief of the volume turn up this podcast episode um, it's been really nice to get back into recording and I think as Lucy said like you've got so much um, insightful stuff to say and like so much stuff that I've just been listening to and I've just been sat here you know like nodding along and I just thought yeah 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 you know can relate to all of that Mm. and um I was wondering whether to like wrap things up like a nice way of like finishing Mm -hmm. our episodes is we ask our guests what's like a top tip they have for somebody who's grieving you know whether that's someone who's newly bereaved Mm. whether that's someone who's you know, far down the line and stuck in their grief. Um, yeah, what would your top tip be for somebody who is grieving? You know, so the thing that I think is the most helpful for me is to think of grief as a practice, that it's that it's a verb and an activity, and that if you do it, you become more accustomed to it. Like you are able to, you know, I often call it an energy that you have to build the muscles to carry, but you know, the people that I have spoken to who really, who really have like integrated grief into their life have worked really hard to do it. So I think, I think the thing that is the most helpful to me is the frame of mind. Like it is something that happened to you, but it is also this like task for you to do. And I don't think there's one way, right? right way to do it. But I do think it's something that we, that we have to like action and, you know, you could do that through prayer. You could do it through exercise. But I think when people say time is going to heal it, or it, you know, it's, it'll, it just won't always feel this way. Or I think like you minimize the gifts that grief can give you, you know, like, like you guys have a podcast. I have a podcast. I have a totally different way of connecting really deeply and quickly with people. Um, I have a different relationship with my husband, with my kids. I feel differently about my work. So I think, I think the, like the tip would be, you know, I get it. I totally understand. We all want to resist it, but that the, that the task itself is something that you can see as a lifelong task and find your own thing, find your own way of doing it. You know, not everybody has to start a podcast. That doesn't make sense for everybody, but it should not be only a bad thing that happened to you, I guess. Like it should, it, it, I shouldn't say should, should is the worst word. Um, it can, there is the potential for it to show you parts of yourself that you haven't even really fully developed or grown. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Grief Sofa podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review to help us reach new listeners. If you have enjoyed listening and would like to join us on the Grief Sofa, please get in touch on Instagram at the Grief Sofa or email us thegriefsofa at gmail.com.